Hello, Dave Chang here. If you are listening to this, there's a good chance you will also like our Discord channel at majordomomedia.com. Majordomomedia.com. Click on the link and you can sign up for our Discord channel. We have a very funny community. Uh, there's a lot of tips. There's a lot of how-tos. There's a lot of commentary about all things cultural, food, recipes, how-tos. It's very funny. I enjoy it. I'm oftentimes stalking on my alt account, keeping tabs of everything that's being said. It's a great companion piece to all the things we've ever done, uh, whether it's podcasts or TV shows, etc. So join our Discord community. And as always, shop.momofuku.com for all your Momofuku products. You can also visit Target or Whole Foods for our noodles, air-dried, delicious. I just had five of those for lunch today. Not me personally. I made five for lunch with some Hunanese green beans with pork via Chris Ying, via Recipe Club. We have the pantry items available at shop.momofuku.com. Go check that out. We have spent many years at the restaurants developing these products so you can bring them to your home kitchen. So do so today. Thank you so, so much. This episode is brought to you by Smucker's Uncrustables. I love a food hack. Check out Uncrustables, the best part of the sandwich. It's a round, crimped sandwich made with soft, pillowy bread filled with peanut butter and jelly. The best part is you simply freeze and thaw them, pop them straight from the freezer into a lunchbox for less work on a busy morning. You'll find Smucker's Uncrustables in the freezer aisle. Learn more at Uncrustables.com. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. Earn up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase every day. Then grow it at 4.50% annual percentage yield when you open a savings account with Apple Card. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card subject to credit approval. Savings available to Apple Card owners subject to eligibility. Savings accounts provided by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, member FDIC. Terms apply. Change Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network, presented by Major Domenia. Thank you, Yola Tango, as always. So I've been home alone. My family just got back a couple days ago. Grace took the kids up to see her parents. Hugo and Gus had never seen their grandparents in their hometown of Seattle, Washington, for a few days because I was on the road as well, which is why I wasn't able to go up to, to see them or help them travel. So I was home alone by the time I got here. And uh, I got to say, it was an immediate reversion to my early 20s version of me when I opened up the fridge. The fridge was a sad thing. And that's what I want to ask you guys. If you are single or if you have a family, and I don't think roommates don't count, what does your fridge look like when you have people over versus when they leave? (laughs) Because immediately it turned into a sad state of affairs of expiring milk and strawberries that were growing mold because there were just not enough people eating this stuff. So it just got pretty empty and it wound up being half-eaten sandwiches, slices of pizza. I mean, in some way, it was cool and nostalgic, but in other ways, it was, it was pretty goddamn sad. And I, I thought I'd enjoy being home alone way more than I did, but man, it's nice, but it's also just goddamn different in a way that I didn't anticipate. So it's not something I'm looking forward to again. It was really nice not to have screaming babies and <laughs> Hugo running around yelling. But um, what does your fridge look like? When members of your family leave, 
Or what does it look like if you're solo and people come in and you have to buy more stuff? I, I, do you go back and what are your eating habits like? Because I'm on a regular schedule, right? I'll tell you, breakfast is at 7.30, lunch is at 11 o'clock. Now with Hugh coming back, it's maybe his lunch is at like one o'clock. Dinner's at 5, 5.30, like, like clockwork. It was almost like intermittent fasting because I don't have to make breakfast. I can drink some coffee, have some cometeer. Then lunch is like, okay, maybe I'll have like an apple or a snack, but I'm too busy and I'm just drinking more coffee. And then lunch, it's really not intermittent fasting or for dinner because I'm ordering something so unhealthy. I ate so unhealthy for the week. So that was the problem. I think one of the benefits to having family and grace here is I don't get to eat like a fucking slob. I ate so fucking bad. When you're eating by yourself, I am a monster. I don't think, <laughs> you know, it's just not a, a pretty thing for me to have a pizza by myself. And I can, I tell you, man, I, I just want to be honest. I had two pizzas that I've not had in many, many years. I've last time was in college station at the fucking Texas A&M Alabama football game. I think 2012, 2013, super hot outside, starving. And the only thing they had there for food was a personal pan pizza that was genius because you could just like, you know, the line just moved so fast. That was the last time. But I grew up eating pizza. And uh, Domino's was something that came in later. But pizza was where we would go in McLean, Virginia and play video games. My brothers and I would ride our bikes. We would play Galaga, Joust, Track and Field. Do you guys remember Track and Field? I sucked at Donkey Kong. Pac-Man never really moved me because it was so hard, but I love Joust. I love Gallic. I love Centipede. You know, that's how strong food can have as an, a nostalgia. I, immediately, I was craving Pizza Hut. I think maybe it's because I was watching Stranger Things and they're in the video games and they're playing arcades and shit like that. I, I have no reason why, but I was compelled to order Pizza Hut and I got a Supreme Pizza. And man, I, I honestly... I don't even know if it was good, but it tasted really good to me. Pan pizza is fucking delicious, guys. In, in, in some ways, maybe like the Detroit style is just a modern day version of Pizza Hut. And there ain't nothing wrong with that. I don't, I don't get to eat pizza too much uh, these days at home. And uh, I was compelled to order Shakey's. I would go to Shakey's occasionally for birthday parties growing up. And they also have pan pizza. So just to give you an insight of how poorly I ate, <laughs> I ate really, really bad. I ordered really greasy shit. And uh, Shakey's was really good too, man. I didn't get the potato skins. I didn't get the chicken wings. I just got a pepperoni pizza and it was, it was so good. It was so goddamn good. And I dipped it in ranch. Sorry, Chris Bianco. <laughs> um, and the other disgusting thing that I ate that was so fucking good. I got a cheesesteak from this deli shop in Eagle Rock. I haven't had a cheesesteak in so long. It was extremely good with pickled jalapenos Listen, I don't know what kind of bread it was on. I don't think it was Omarosa roll, the, the bread of choice in Philadelphia, but I would eat a cheesesteak all the time in college, all the time, like every day maybe. And it just shows you how much my life has changed because um, you can't eat what you used to do in your 20s. And thank God for that because I used to not even have silverware in my apartment. It was just takeaway containers and cork containers from work. And now, you know, it's like a, a real suburban house. I'm glad my family's back because I don't have to eat like a fucking slob anymore. And I'm glad that it's probably better when I eat in front of somebody because when I eat by myself, it's like someone's trying to steal my food. <laughs> I don't know if that makes sense to anybody, but I'm pretty sure it makes sense to some of you guys. 
But um, that was my week of eating like a total young person all over again. And I'm not going to be able to because I have to eat healthy again. I got a checkup in a month or so. So that was my my cheat week for sure. But I'm excited. My my family was back. The first thing I cooked, and this is what I really want to get to, is pork chops. Brian, your pork chops. I, you don't need a Brian recipe from me. Just go online. And it, I don't think the 50-50 ratio of salt to sugar is right. You don't even need sugar, but you need a little sugar to help with the caramelization Maillard reaction process. I don't brine anything. I don't recommend brine anything, anything at home, not even a turkey or chicken. We do do these things in restaurants. Uh, if you do a turkey, we can talk about dry brining uh, when that holiday comes around. But I do think any pork chop that is under an inch should be turned into tonkatsu or some kind of smothered gravy pork chop, which is delicious. Anything over an inch and a half with a nice fat cap, uh, I recommend brining because, you know, it is, uh, it is a tad leaner than a steak. It doesn't have the marbling of, uh, of red meat. A lot of the fat on pork is, in, is just like uh, stuck on the outside of the cap itself. So the, the meat needs flavor. It needs that juiciness because it can be a little bit drier. So you denature the, the, the meat itself and it becomes effectively like waterlogged. You're, you're taking the salty water solution of the brine and it becomes sort of stuck in the meat itself as it cooks. So it's more juicy. And I think that is the reason why a brine pork chop works so well. And if I see it at a restaurant, like a double cut pork chop cooked over grill, it's a catnip. I'm ordering it every fucking time. I don't know why. It's just so delicious to me. And I think it's going to be delicious to everyone else. Like a good pork chop can be transcendent, really. So I got four nice pork chops. It was actually way too much food for my family, but I brined them the night before in some salt, a little bit of sugar, black pepper, and for color, because I wanted to darken it a little bit. I added some dark soy sauce and I brined that for, you know, 12 hours or so. And a couple hours before cooking, I just patted them dry, put them on a, a wire rack. And even if they're super dry on the outside, they're still now saturated in that brine solution, which is why I don't suggest cooking them inside in an oven or under a broiler. It will smoke your house out and um, you're just going to have a hard time with the BTUs of getting a nice sear caramelization. I just don't, it's not that it's not possible. I just don't think the return is worth it. So it's being summer. Uh, if you can cook outside, that's how I would cook this. Try to get a really thick pork chop, brine it. If you're going to grill it, get it on a super, super hot flame or or piece of like where where the radiant heat is just ripping, you know, 500-ish because you need the the heat hot enough so you can actually caramelize as it, as it expunges some of the liquid in it. Otherwise, it's going to look like a shitty piece of sous vide meat. And we should talk about sous vide a whole nother day, but um, I used to be a big fan of sous vide. I still love sous vide things, but not not protein meats outside of say a long 36 to 48 hour process popularized by the Ken Roca brothers and Muguritz in Spain. I see a lot of people now claiming 48 hour short ribs and such like they invented it. They didn't invent shit. That is worth it. I think doing a sirloin, doing a, a filet, I see it all the time now. Even my friends are doing it and I just, I want them to stop because I understand that it can work because you can sandbag it and it's like you can kiss it on the flame and it's easy to serve if you have people over. But I think you lose on texture for me personally. And I'm, I'm not a big fan. There are restaurants and steakhouses where I know that I'm getting a sous vide cut of meat and I'm not the biggest fan of that either. And the reason I'm talking about that is it's hard to get a nice caramelized char on 
a piece of meat that's been cooked in a bag or in vacuum because of the, the moisture content. The only way you can sometimes do it is dropping into a deep fryer or on a super, super ripping hot grill or oven. And that's why I, I'm explaining to you, if you're going to cook a pork chop, do it outside, do it on an extreme heat. Just make sure it doesn't burn because it's going to burn pretty quickly because if you added the sugar, even if you add a little sugar, it's going to burn. But you want some of that char. Anyway, around 400 degrees, move it to the lower side of your grill. And uh, I cook it to like medium you know, not medium rare, medium, and let it rest and it gets just a little bit above medium. So I'm not looking for super pink, but just like rose pink in the middle. That is not what the USDA or FDA approved. They want you to hammer the fucking shit out of your pork chop. I think that is a lie. Don't do that. That's garbage. A lot of it depends too. If you're buying, if, if you're buying um, commodity pork, I probably would cook it more well done, but I got some nice pork chops and I wanted it a little bit rosier in the center. Um, which is totally fine. That's how I like to do it. So anyway, that was my summer tip to you. Brine your fucking pork chops. Don't brine your turkeys. You should dry brine those. We'll do a whole Thanksgiving day special. Um, and I, I just want to say, I was like, one of the reasons I don't recommend brining is it takes too much space in your refrigerator. It just does. And, and, and because I had nothing in my refrigerator, because there was nothing in my house for food-wise, I was able to brine my pork chops no problem. So I think it makes a big difference. It does make it more delicious in a, in a dramatic fashion. It really does. I'm not going to talk about pastrami. I'm not going to talk about corned beef. Those are things I would never make at home. But if you're going to brine something, and if you're going to grill something, try it with a pork chop. And I cooked that up with some corn. Uh, maybe I'll post a photo up. It was fucking delicious. Uh, lastly, um, when I got back to LA, I was with uh, Marguerite and a couple other people from Momofuku. We decided to stop by this restaurant called Anna Jack Tynes Sherman Oaks. And I got to say, I knew nothing about it. I, I read a lot of things about food, but I'm trying my best to not uh, look at food porn. I'm trying my best not to read about anything, <laughs> quite frankly, like uh, what to eat, where to go, what's hot, et cetera, et cetera. Because I, I want to find things out on my own. And I want to, if I do eat at a restaurant, I want to hear from somebody I know that I trust that isn't being broadcast everywhere. And even if it is, let me just sort of rephrase that. Even if it is broadcast everywhere, I don't want to be the person to know about it. I want to have some sense of discovery. I want to know now in 2022, I want to have some sense of wonderment that I don't know what's happening. I don't know what's going on. I know nothing about the chef. I know nothing about the, 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 the provenance. I know nothing about the narrative. That word narrative happens all the time in fucking food. I know nothing because I want that feeling again. I'm like, holy shit, this is amazing. I didn't always feel that way though. I didn't always feel this way. I used to want to know every fucking thing. That's why we're going to get into this conversation with Chris Yang and Ivan Orkin. Chris Yang is going to speak to Ivan. We're going to hear his thoughts on what happened in 2015, which is a moment that we've talked about more than a handful of times on this podcast. And it dawned on us that maybe you guys don't know what the fuck we're talking about. Maybe you guys have no idea what we're talking about when Ivan Orkin went live on the first day of the pop-up in Noma, Japan, the pop-up they did, which was like the hottest ticket, the most impossible reservation to get. And some say like the, the, like some of the best food anyone's ever had. Um, not a surprise because it was in Japan. 
uh, and the excellence there and the team of Renee and, and the whole team of Noma. And, you know, it was just a different vibe in 2015. And everybody wanted to go there, but I couldn't. It was in Japan. Or maybe I had just come back from Japan. I, you know, it's just hard to fucking get up and leave. I've only done that once to go to LBE. Can't do that now. So everyone I knew at that date, that moment, was watching Ivan Orkin's feed about his meal at Noma. And everybody wanted to know what was happening. Everybody wanted to see what was uh, being plated, what the food looked like. And when I say everybody, that's, the, again, one of the things we need to discuss. Very few people wanted to know. But my thought was, and I'm sure people are watching this, everybody that they knew in their universe, their peer group, wanted to watch. And we're going we're gonna to unpack this because I think it's an important note. And I don't have a definitive answer as we try to sort of figure out how to make things, I don't want to say better as diners, but full of discovery to make things more delicious, life more delicious uh, as sort of I think about things, that there needs to be some way of discovering food without knowing every fucking thing out there. But at the same time, the paradox of like having enough information to get there. So again, it's not a definitive thing. This is just a conversation. And we're going to get to that right now. And I don't want to give you too much background here because uh, I want to get your your real real reaction to this because okay. Mr. Chang described the I think lunch you had did you have lunch at Noma Japan or dinner I was the first table of the entire Japanese Japan pop up okay. to be seated and to be and to be served by Rene Redzep. He was my waiter. So I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't. And, and it was recorded. So, and then I did the Instagram post and Business Insider picked it up because I was the first person to talk about the pop-up. Well, so let's, let's not get, let's not jump the gun here. So, so let's back up. So let's, let's, let's back up here because Dave describes this moment as a, the assassination of the Archduke Franz Ferdinand. <laughs> it set off an entire chain of global events. So let's say, so you're the first, you're the first table at Noma, Japan. You, uh, you spent the better part of three decades living in Japan, living, cooking, raising kids. When you, when you went in there, did you think like, oh man, I'm going to, I'm going to be the first person to broadcast this whole meal. Like this is going to be huge. Like I'm going to show everybody this thing. No, not even the tiniest bit. (laughs) You were posting them on Instagram, right? Each course as it came out, basically. First of all, you have to, I, I would preface it by saying, I think I had just started doing Instagram. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't think I had like, now I have, I mean, compared to some people, I, ha- I don't have a lot compared to other people. I have a huge amount. I have like 160,000 followers right now. And I think when I did, in, did that post, I think I had like 10 right. or 20. Right. I think I can't, I actually can't really remember. I don't know how you can check that. But that's, but anyway, I think at the time it was certainly below 50. Mm-hmm. The, the, you know what? My, the main memory of that was that I made myself, I, I, I forced myself to make a pact with myself. Which was what? And the pact was that I would take no more than 10 seconds per picture. 
And because, because I, because I was really, like I said, I don't really even remember. I mean, I, I certainly by that time I knew that, that Noma and Renee were very, were, it was a very important restaurant and he was a very important uh, figure in the culinary world. And I was, I was very excited to have the chance to go. I was very honored that I was able to get the tickets. You know, I said to my wife, I said to Madi, I said, uh, guess what? I mean, I, I barely asked if she wanted to or not. I mean, I was just like, you know, we have seats at this thing and I think we're going, you know, and Ren was still pretty young enough that I could pull him out of school. I think it was in January, maybe. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and we just, and we called our friend. She said she would watch our, our child who was, I guess, eight years old at the time or whatever, six, eight. And we flew back to, and I said to Madi, you know, there's never a bad time to go to Tokyo. Of which she, well, of which she heartily agreed. Oh, so this is the and other so thing. We you went. were in. You were. I, I, I totally. I totally blanked on this. You were. All, you were living in New York. Yes, I was living in New York again. And did then. you fly to Tokyo specifically for this dinner? Basically, I did. <laughs> <laughs> I acted like all you other yahoos oh, to actually a... fucking fly halfway halfway around the world like like total dopes what to a... go like eat 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 like octopus. Or I mean, something. listen, we're not on you trial know? here. You're the dick who flew across the world for dinner. <laughs> I... I'm not. I, I agree. I am. Were I you am, posting? I am, a, I am the dick. Were you posting your Instagrams as it was unfolding, as you were eating? Yeah, it was real time. I, I posted like each pick, each dish. The, the, so the, the other amazing memory for me of of this, if you, if we're discussing in terms of the Instagram thing, was that I, I, this is the truth. I really did say to myself, like, I didn't want to be that idiot who was taking pictures when I was getting this great food. And, and Rene Redzepi himself was coming and chatting with us and bringing our dishes. And I was really excited to chat with him. And I didn't want to be there like, you know, with the camera and everything. So I said, you know, it's gotta be like 10 seconds or less, you know, you get one shot, bro. And that is it. And I don't care if it looks like a turd, you're taking that picture and then you move on. And so the amazing thing is that somehow every picture looked pretty good or great. And did you wait for him when he, so if he, if whoever's dropping the plate, did you wait for them to describe the dish and then leave and then take your photo? Or were you taking the photos as they were talking? I don't, I don't take photos while people speak to me. <laughs> That's way too rude. I know you're even whether, it, whether it's a rate, whether it's a waiter or it's Renee Redzepi himself, I don't do that shit. I and mean, that's just, so they drop the food. They say, here's our, uh, clam tart with black garlic. We hope you enjoy it. It's based on this. These are Hokkaido clams, whatever. And then he goes back to the kitchen and yeah. you, you scramble out with a camera, take a quick photo, post it, and then take yes. a bite. Okay. Yes. As you were posting yes. these, did you, did you have a sense that like they were getting traction as you were posting? Did you have a sense that people in America were basically watching this meal unfold in real time as you were having it? No. <laughs> when did you... Re- the only thing I knew... Well, later on, I heard that Business Insider... Like within a few hours or something, I, I somehow someone told me or I saw somewhere that Business Insider picked up the ramen junkie feed and talked about it. Mm-hmm. And that's all I remember. And then your sort of like your 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 unveiling of this meal sort of became, you know, if you if you Google Noma Japan now, half the websites that wrote about it posted photos from you. <laughs> just like link to your Instagram. Is that true? Yeah, like Eaters got it up there and everything. Did you, do you remember if you saw like a big uptick in followers after you had this meal? Yeah, you know, I think I did. I, I can't, you know, you know me by now. I'm kind of an old fart. And so I, you know, I don't know that I'm always totally aware of things like this. So, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, I mean, I think I did. I think I did have an uptick. Yeah. You know, Instagram is that, net, unfortunately, is this necessary evil. I mean, if I, 
like retired and I didn't care what anybody, I had no more connection to business. I would cancel my Instagram account tomorrow. (laughs) (laughs) I just, just, it's, it's a lot of work and I, and, and, you know, I I don't want to make it sound that way. You know, it's nice that people follow me. It's, it's, it is, it's really nice that people care enough that they follow it and they want to see my opinion. And I take, actually take it seriously. So if I eat a meal, I don't like, I, I, I refuse to ever post anything I don't like. And I refuse to say negative things. So I won't post something and say it was shit either. I either really like it and I post about it or I don't post about it, but I won't post and say these guys are bozos. I just, I don't know. It's just not, it's not who I want to be. And I, th- and I don't think it's fair with the amount of people who listen to me. I don't want to be that guy who, cause I also know that, that there's all reasons why people make mistakes. Some people are just assholes and that's nothing I can do about it. And some people have really bad days <laughs> and, and, and I can't do anything about that either. So I just, you know, I just, I, I, I sort of figure people want to hear, Hey, was that restaurant good? And I say, yeah, it was good. It was really great. You should check it out. So, you know. This, you know, I, I don't think you put a lot of thought into this when you were you were sort of just posting each dish as a dish as it came. But, you know, you look back on this moment now and, and Dave looks back on this all the time. <laughs> this this ticket to Noma Japan, which I know how you got, you know, it, it sort of fell into your lap on by mistake. Somebody else had, had gotten a ticket and you had to fly across the world to do it. Jokes aside, like. This is one of this is one of the most exclusive tables in the world. It's more exclusive than any normal restaurant table because this is a Noma pop up in Japan. This is a very hard thing to come by. You know, in, in past generations, the experience of eating that meal is reserved only for people who are there. Right. So like you didn't put much thought into this fact, but like you really opened the door <laughs> for anybody in the world to see exactly what was happening in the restaurant as it was unfolding. Harkening back to your, your, you know, when you were a young cook, like how crazy is that difference now that you don't have to go anywhere to see every single course of a meal? Well, yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's, I mean, basically it's why our world is ended. <laughs> Wait, say, why do you <laughs> say more about that? Say more about that. <laughs> what do you mean? What do you mean? I mean, you know, people can say whatever they think and, and everybody can hear it at the same time and it's ruining everything. It's horrible. I'm so, I, I would like to publicly apologize for contributing to this. <laughs> and that's what this really is. This is a, uh, an airing of grievances. We have Ivan Norkin to blame for the state of the world today. Um, can we talk about that though for a second? Like when you were, when you were a, a young up and coming cook working in New York, um, do you remember, or even when you were like trying to figure out, uh, Japan and, and ramen and everything, do you remember how hard it was to get information about a restaurant or a food that you like hadn't eaten? Well, that, you know, but that's, you know, if you're talking about Dave, one of my, and I've read many things he's written over the years. And I, one of my favorite quotes he's ever said is when he was a young cook, like when I was a young cook, if you wanted to know what a restaurant was doing across town, you got on the fucking subway and you stood in front of there like a dope reading the menu. Mm-hmm. And that's how you got your information. And just like him, that's how I, I would do the same thing. I would say, hear about that place. And, you know, we would go there without a reservation, maybe hoping to get in or we couldn't afford it. So we just stand out there and read the menu and say, oh, wow. There was nowhere to really read and get opinions of what people were doing or get pictures or anything. You'd go across town and you'd look at the menu. And that mm-hmm. was kind of it. And um, quite frankly, I would happily go back to that because I really feel like you're, you know, I mean, look, I, I, you know, I get my, my information from reading. I still do. I know some of you out there don't really know what that is. 
but it's where you look at a bunch of words. They have these things called punctuation that split up these things called sentences, and then you get knowledge from them. <laughs> and that's, you know, that's how I get most of what Boring. I know about uh, still in 2022 <laughs> is reading books, but, uh, but not, not looking at, uh, at sound bites that are 140 words or less. When you, <laughs> I, I, I am a small <laughs> proponent of reading, 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 uh, back to the subject at hand here. You're at Noma, Japan. You're taking these photos. You're posting them as you're going. Are people around you also taking photos? Yeah, of course. So that was seven years ago. I think Instagram was just starting to really take off then. Mm -hmm. I think people were taking pictures, I'm sure. And it was interesting because it was like the restaurant was sort of segregated for with Japanese guests and non-Japanese guests. And the non-Japanese guests got the English-speaking waiters and you were and they were closer to the kitchen. And then the Japanese guests were out on in this space. This is uh this is this space in the Mandarin Hotel. And uh I remember just sort of seeing how the whole the whole like dining room was was segregated, if you will, which I thought was kind of funny. And because uh, <laughs> you're in Japan, well, because it was such a in a way it was a real disconnect, I kind of feel like it was just like it, it, you know, part of it was just, oh, it's this thing to do, maybe, or to check out. For other people, it's like, you know, it's making that that pilgrimage. Uh, you know, maybe this once in a life, who knows? I mean, this was the first one he ever did. He, he went on to do Sydney and he did Tulum and it sounds like he has plans for more interesting adventures and things like that. And those of us who know what Noma do, we, we kind of follow it and it's, it's exciting. It's fun. I've, I've only done the Japan one. I, I didn't go to any of the others, but, uh, and this was a very out of character for me because normally I would never have done this. I mean, I, I and as I could, cause I never did do it again. I, I think, you know, spending that much money and time to go have one experience is, is incredibly luxurious, especially for a guy with like three kids mm -hmm. and doing so many and out of business and everything. But, uh, but that's why the Japan thing was so exciting. Like I said to my wife, going to Japan is like a no brainer. Hey, you want to go to Japan? It's like, uh, I mean, are you asking me or like, well, of course I want to go to Japan. We, 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 we go to Japan any chance we can. And it's, uh, so, so going to Japan, it wasn't a stretch for us. It kind of was like, you know, and Ren was still small enough that you could just grab him and say, Hey, you know, we're leaving. It didn't matter. So I'm, I'm looking right now at this eater article from 2015 about that's called inside noma japan which is hilarious to me right it's like we're giving you the inside scoop on noma japan we're not there but somebody else is and it's just basically your instagram feed it's just all these photos from you it's photos a couple photos from a couple of other diners just of like the the skyline and stuff there's a picture from renee but it's mostly just every single photo you posted uh from noma japan this you know this is my question, I guess, do those photos, as you know, like you said, they're good photos. Like, of course they are. Like everybody picked them up. Like, do they do justice to for not, not, not in terms of like how great the meal was, but like, can you really glean what it was like to eat there and have those dishes by looking at these photos? Can you ever, <laughs> do you ever look uh, yeah, no, back? I mean, really, I mean, do you ever look back at those photos? Do you ever look at them? No, and not not once since you just mentioned this, and I went, oh yeah, black black garlic tart. I remember that one. I can sort of remember what it looked like, but I, but uh, you know, I don't know. I mean, it's I've had I've had so many meals in my life, and I don't. There's not too many I like go back on fast, fascinate, you know, and 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 uh, and dream about really. You know, not that it, I mean it was a great meal. It was a lot of fun. You know, I remember the food being really exciting, but I also remember it was also the moment that 
this was this grand experiment that he did, which I think I still think was a really brave and, and, and interesting thing to do. I mean, when you talk, you know, that, that guy, he's successful because he's so good at taking himself out of his comfort zone. And it seems like every time he gets comfortable, he makes himself get uncomfortable again, as much as you can when you're that powerful and successful. But I still think he does things that are that, that, that help you to really grow. You know, I, I mean, that's always been my philosophy too. Some of the best moments I've had was when I purposely put myself out of my comfort zone and all of a sudden big stuff happens. Uh, it's a great way to think, I think. So you, you are a, you know, one of the chefs I love best in the world. You are a world-class eater, despite the fact that you're trying to make it sound like we eat more than you. You, you eat like a fucking crazy <laughs> person, please. You know, as, as, as the, as Ivan Orkin, you know, I've eaten many, 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 many meals with you. And like both of us take photos of tons of the food we eat. Do you ever look back at those photos? Like, do you ever actually look at your photos of food? Um, you know, I do, but I, I always say to myself, what an idiot. Why don't you delo- delete all these pictures? You know, you never really look at them again. I mean, you should see my thing. And, and then I'll meet somebody who I've never met before. And they'll say, uh, I'll say, yes, I have three boys, you know, and then they'll say, oh, great. Do you have any pictures? And I'll sit there just like scrolling and scrolling. I'm like, you want to? I'm like, you want to see a, you want to see a hot dog? You want to see a, you want to, oh, I have a. The story you're telling right now is funny. You don't actually, I don't know if you remember this. The person you're describing who asked to see a picture of your kid was my wife. And you were in Copenhagen with her and you were like, yeah. She was like, how's Ren? Let me see a picture. And you had to scroll for a full three minutes before you got through all the food photos and found one photo of your kid. I now keep them in my favorite file. So I actually, now I can actually get to them, but yes, um, I, I, I will, I will, I will, I will strenuously uh, fight you if you suggest that I like food more than my children, but I do like taking photos of food more than I like taking pictures of my children. (laughs) This episode is brought to you by eBay motors. eBay motors is here for the ride. Look to your left, Look to your right. Yep, no one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. This episode is brought to you by Smucker's Uncrustables. I love a food hack. Check out Uncrustables, the best part of the sandwich. It's a round, crimped sandwich made with soft, pillowy bread filled with peanut butter and jelly. The best part is you simply freeze and thaw them, pop them straight from the freezer into a lunchbox for less work on a busy morning. You'll find Smucker's Uncrustables in the freezer aisle. Learn more at Uncrustables.com. This episode is brought to you by Seed. Did you know that most green powders and probiotics don't survive digestion? Seed's DS01 Daily Symbiotic is engineered in a two-in-one capsule to safeguard viability through digestion for complete delivery to your colon. A broad-spectrum probiotic and prebiotic formulated with 24 clinically and scientifically studied strains for whole body benefits, including gut, heart, and skin health. Visit seed.com slash Dave Chang and use the code 25 Dave Chang to start seeding today. That's code 25 Dave Chang to start seeding today. So for the longest time, 
I would always look at the world of high-end fashion, couture fashion, to give me a sense of what might happen. Doesn't mean like it was always going to happen, but a lot of things happened in fashion that would eventually find its way in some form as a pattern in food. I'm the least fashionable person you know, really. One of the least fashionable people you know, just ask my wife. But somehow I got to know a lot of people in fashion, designers, stylists, people that wrote about fashion, people that were, you know, just love the world of fashion. And I got interested in fashion, not because of what they wore, but the creative process, how businesses were structured, the trends, because it was all about trend forecasting. It was all about knowing what was next and knowing what was hot and being relevant. I would say for a long time, I thought my internal sort of judge was fashion was probably like three to five years ahead. Anything that was working fashion was potentially three to five years ahead of what was happening in food. So I would look at fashion, and I still do, to give me some sense of what might be happening down the road in the world of food. You might ask yourself, well, that's ridiculous. I don't see any of the comparisons. Well, number one, the world of fashion has been in uh, the public eye and scrutiny much longer than food. Look at the, all of the magazines and the industry and how huge the fashion industry is. Again, the food industry is fucking massive. And I think in, in aggregate, way larger than the fashion industry. But we're talking about high-end restaurants, independent restaurants, which is a much smaller sliver if you take out groceries and the, the McDonald's of the world. But if you're looking at high-end restaurants, it, there's a lot of similarities. Number one, I thought the creative was very similar. You would have teams that worked with a designer or designer themselves, whether you're a brand like Ralph Lauren or Tommy Hilfiger or LVMH or I can't list all the names right now, but you had all kinds of people trying to sell a customer sort of the same sort of thing, you know, in the sense that you have these huge brands, you have brands that have designers working for them. You have brands that are the designer doing everything. You had everything in between, very similar to the, 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 the fractured nature of restaurants, independent restaurants, in terms of uh, the shows that was happening. Like if you weren't coming up, I don't know, you have winter, you have fall, you have spring, summer. There's probably now, I think, like maybe eight to nine fashion shows. If you're a designer, you have to come up with one. What seems like every month, a giant show showcasing your new work. It just became so intense and so stressful that I don't know how it even works anymore. And I think even some people are now like opting out of doing it, but you would have these shows that would let the world know what you were working on. These shows were significant in the sense that it set up the business of fashion. You would have an editor from say Vogue approve the show or not approve the show. Then the, the, what was approved, the buyers would then say, okay, I want to buy an X allotment of this. And then it would take nine to 12 months for whatever was happening in that season to be sold, you know, nine to 12 months later. It was a, a very rigid process that was rapidly moving. And, you know, that's how things got sold. And that, and the creative process led to the business of it, right? And the, the middle person was the media or the magazines or the buyers. The middle is what let people know what was fashionable, what was cool, what was hot. That's very similar to the food world. Again, independent restaurants, high-end food world. At uh, the super, super high end, you had things like Madrid Fusion and Gastronomica, these food conferences starting in 2002 or so, where, you know, if you were a well-known chef or an up-and-coming chef, you would showcase, this is my ideas, this is the menu, this is the restaurant, 
This is the technique that I've developed that I'm now sort of letting you know that this is my IP. And food writers and food editors and magazines and restaurant people in general would follow this and know, okay, this is what's going to be cool and this is what's going to be hot. And this is ultimately where you get top 50 and Michelin guide and best of new list and whatever. It's, it's very similar in that regard from the creative process to the selling of your creative process is very similar in my opinion. One difference is, is people in fashion wing more and more than you, uh, on a whole than people in food because it's shelf stable. It's not going to disappear. And even on that end, you have some similarities because most designers don't make money until they start selling, you know, ready to wear or um, handbags and perfumes. You could see that just look at, say, someone like Danny Meyer, who has high-end restaurants, but didn't really start crushing until they have something like Shake Shack or even like Rick Bayless with his Frontera Grill stuff and his salsas and all that stuff. We're trying to do something similar with Momofuku. Is it a perfect analogy? No, but there are a lot of similarities. The stress, the audience, the gatekeeping, very similar in terms of the business. And I would follow it religiously to give me some insight of what was happening in food. And I have friends in fashion, I have friends that work in sports, I have friends that work in almost every kind of creative industry in culture. And every single person now is so almost at the same level of, I don't know what the fuck's going on anymore. It's, so, it's more exciting and more fascinating than ever before, but it's so, so full of doubt and uncertainty because it's very hard to predict what the fuck is going to happen because we're all in this state of, I don't know what the fuck is happening anymore. And most of that is because of technology. Most of that is because of photography. Most of that is because of social media. That's a pretty significant thing. So I can't talk about fashion anymore because the fashion industry is totally screwed in a lot of ways. You know, there's no IP. There's no trademark for clothing ideas and, and, and designs. So you have people like Zara and H&M now, you know, stealing designs and then getting it to the market as soon as possible. So there's a lot of things that change, but I wanted to go back to the one thing that really changed everything and why we're talking about all this stuff to begin with. Social media and the fact that the gatekeeping and the, and, and the middle market got decimated and that's created opportunity and made things more difficult in ways that we're still trying to unpack. So now a fashion show is public more often than not. You don't need Anna Wintour or some fashion editor to decide this is what's good. You don't need some buyer at a retail outlet or a boutique to say, I want 25 of these dresses. You don't have to wait for this process anymore. You don't have to wait nine months to a year for the design that's on a runway model to be sold at your store a year later, nine months here, nine months later. You, it can now happen almost immediately. That's a dramatic change in the structure of creativity and the business of it. That's exactly what's happened with food today. And I think we're all trying to sort out what the fuck it all means. You don't have to wait because now fashion shows are live. A lot of them are live. This transparency is, is revolutionary. It's amazing. It's exciting. We all want it. We all want more of it. But I don't know if we have process, at least I have, is that a good thing? Just because we have it, is it good? You know, it's open a lot of opportunities, but I think maybe in some ways the, the process of how we think about doing anything hasn't changed. We're still in this mindset. We're still applying old paradigms to a new way of doing business. That's basically what I wanted to articulate. And in food, 
I think the moment that happened in 2015 was the moment that mirrored what was happening in the fashion world, right? I don't know what was the first fashion show to go live. I don't remember the first fashion show where somebody that enjoyed fashion could be a voice in, in, in it. Like someone like Margaret Zhang, who you may not be familiar with because I was in Australia living there. And this, I think she was probably 16 years old. She just was like a blogger that was talking about fashion and loved fashion and loved dresses. This woman is now the editor of Vogue China. I mean, again, like it's changed so much in fashion where the gatekeepers have changed. You don't need to wait on anything. It is instantaneous about what is good and what is bad and what you like and what you dislike. And there's this cacophony of opinions now, which is good and bad. But myself and Chris Ying have identified that 2015 Ivan Orkin broadcasting that no meal was the, the, the moment where food was not 24 to 36 months or five years behind fashion. Fashion and food were not at the same level of, of discovery. We're all in a discovery process. Every aspect of culture now is in discovery process because if there was any sort of asymmetric information, it was because of the gatekeepers, right? And I, I think it's a fascinating study as to what and how we're going to better understand what food is going to be and how to be better diners. Cause that's what we want to do. We want to make people better diners. We want to make life more delicious. We want to do these things and have a better understanding of it. Myself included. Cause I'm still in this fucking business. I'm still trying to understand what the fuck is happening. And it's more confusing than ever. Maybe it's a good primer to give people an idea of what it was like to make food before phones. Uh, maybe it's a good idea to give people an idea of what I, 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 I don't, I can tell you fashion before phones really. But I can tell you food. I can't talk about anything else really other than food. I can't talk about what it was like to make music before streaming and Spotify and iTunes, but I can talk about food. And the thing that fundamentally altered food wasn't reservation systems. It was photography because people could have been writing beautiful prose about restaurants for years, but you know, you don't, you can only make something sound delicious or terrible with words so much. But when photography becomes accessible, when Instagram works, when Flickr happened, I don't even know if Flickr's a thing, but with the advent of smartphones, smartphone technology changed fucking our worlds so much that it's probably the most significant change in our lives since, I don't know, domestication of wildlife. I have no fucking idea. I'm not an anthropologist. Clearly, I'm not. But I can say unequivocally, I can't think of anything that changed how we eat, changed how we cook, changed the creative process and changed everything about food. Because when I, I remember first cooking, I craft and the idea that somebody would ever take a photo of a plate of food was just, that never, that never even happened. Think about that. Nobody ever took a photo of food in restaurants until the advent of food blogs. Smartphone technology with cameras didn't come to like 2006 or something like that, right? 2000, with, with slow internet, you had Chowhound, you had eGullet, you had Opinionated About Dining, you had Mouthfuls, you had people like Steve Plotnicki, Stephen Shaw, and what began as this early food culture foodies where people would travel with these big-ass cameras setting up tripods in the dining room and taking photos of your food. The only time that would ever happen was when your restaurant was closed and food arts or art culinaire or Apicus magazine or 
gourmet magazine would come in and take some glossy photos of your restaurant, of your food or something like that. That was the only time that that fucking ever happened. But I remember in 2000, I think it was Steve Plotnicki comes in and he sets up a podcast, a, a tripod and he's taking photo of a lobster dish. All I remember was I, I, I heard that someone was taking photos upstairs in the dining room. Think about that. That was enough for me to be like, what the fuck? And I re- remember going upstairs and sneaking around the corner and being like, someone's taking photos of food? That's so insane. Maybe I'm the only person that felt that way, but I didn't understand that because that just never happened. You never took photos of food. If anything, I remember some people taking sketches of food. You might've seen that in like a Moleskin notebook. Someone might take a sketch of food, but nobody took fucking photos of food. So that was just a crazy thing. Eventually, those tripods turned into smartphones. I was sort of front and center at this whole phone in a restaurant fucking thing because I saw this whole thing happen. I think one of the reasons Momo became successful is because we got a lot of people that wrote about food blogs or on these chat forums and they were taking photos of food. If someone's taking a photo of your food, that's amazing. It means they, they want to broadcast it. They want to share your food with other people. So we'd style them out. I had no problem with that. Where I had a problem with it was when we opened up Co in 2008 or 2009, whenever it was, 12 seats. It was the original noodle bar, 600 square feet. And people would set up, this is still before like really good cell phone technology. People would still need to take their like Nikon camera with a fucking flash and set it up. Sometimes they didn't have a light shield and it'd be extremely distracting to diners. Extremely distracting because it's, it's a large cumbersome thing. Also, by the time you get it set up from a diner's perspective, from a, from a chef's perspective, number, number one is you're now going to, if you're taking the photos of food, more than likely you're going to write about it. Clearly, from my perspective, we want you to write something positive about it, not something negative. And the more time you spend taking photos of the dish, the less, des- less delicious this dish is going to be when they finally consume it. Sometimes five to 10 minutes later, like food is extremely ephemeral. It's, it's changing rapidly, especially if a hot dish is getting cold or even a cold dish, if it's a salad or if it's a raw fish with an acidic environment, shit's changing rapidly. And when you're making that dish, it's for a specific moment to be consumed, not five to 10 fucking minutes later. So number one, that's the problem. The food is literally dying and you may not enjoy it as much because you spent so much time taking the fucking photo. Secondly, from my perspective, if you're taking a five to 10 minutes for each dish that's coming out, you've now lost a, another seating behind you potentially because now you've added at least 30 minutes to your dinner taking photos. I just didn't have time with that. So we came up with the photo ban. I was like, nobody's taking photos of this. We're just not allowing you to do so. And it wasn't because we didn't want people to take photos of the food. You understand, like, I, I think one of the reasons when Momo became successful is because we really embraced people that took photos of our food. It was simply because it was distraction to the diner and because you were going to ruin your dining experience. We didn't want that shit. But the irony is, as cell phones got better, as cameras got smaller as well, and smartphone technology got better, and we're talking maybe like the the 2012-ish, that's probably around, it happened, 2011, 2012, when phones started to have that, the camera that could do in, in dark lighting and take photos and without a flash and not be distracting. When we moved Co to eight extra place, it dawned on me, nobody knew what the fuck we were cooking. I thought Sean Gray and Josh Pinsky and the whole team, so they, were, they were making, we were, I honestly think it was the best one, one of the best restaurants in the fucking world, especially at that moment. It was 
unbelievably good what was being made, but nobody knew about it because we weren't telling anybody. Thankfully, we were, you know, people were coming in, but the the ban had a negative effect because that was the beginning of the process where people were no longer using word of mouth from a friend to say, come to this restaurant. So we 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 lifted the ban and now people could see what the fuck we were doing. I think the photography element of food stopped conversation. It really did. People stopped talking about it because why would you talk about when I could just show you a fucking photo? I think that was extremely damaging. People don't talk about food the way they used to. Anyway, we lifted it and things changed and, and that's just what happened. But I saw it firsthand how different the customer, the guest's experience was because they knew now. They were coming in before they were coming in without any photos, they had knew nothing. They were, they were leaving like, oh my God, I don't even know what's happening. Now we take photos they were expecting every course. And if we deviated it, 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 it was like, what? So it's not so different than a comedian. If you go to see a, a, a comedian that prevents you from bringing your cameras into the, the show, you put in a little, a little, little bag and it gets locked away and you pick it up on the way out. I mean, there's a reason why. You don't... Comedians want you to not have like to not know every fucking joke. There needs to be a sense of discovery. And listen, I I know for a lot of comedians, and I have friends that are not comedians, and they may see the comedian on tour do their special. When they see the special on Netflix or Hulu or something like that, they're disappointed because they've already seen it before. Like if that's a comedian, it's way fucking harder to surprise people with food. You understand? So there's, there's really a benefit to not having cameras. And this is the paradox that I think a lot of us are in myself as a diner, myself as, you know, that's still in restaurants is how the hell do you disseminate what's happening in your restaurant, right? When there's no longer the traditional gatekeepers and it's now instant information, it's sort of a clusterfuck. That's what I think, you know, even before cameras, the way food got processed, that information got processed, whether you're in America or Europe, and this is even before the internet, you would hope to get a good review at your local newspaper if you weren't in a major city. You would then be invited to do, say, a dinner somewhere else, and then that's how you sort of network, and then you do a bigger dinner that gets you a local magazine or food and wine finally gives you a best new chef thing. That's what you're sort of going for. Then maybe Art Culinaire does a piece on you, maybe Food Arts does a piece on you, then Say the New York Times does something on you. And if you're international, you know, you do, if you're from Spain, you do Madrid Fusion, then you do Gastronomica, then you come to America to do some kind of American culinary chef conference thing. Then you come out with a cookbook. That cookbook comes out two to three years later, translated in English. So it was like a really slow fucking process to get your fucking shit out there. That was interesting too, because I can name like, say, Alain Passard, another chef talked about a lot. He was copied so much, guys. <laughs> he was copied so much. People from America, American chefs, would go to work at Arpege and then come back. And because there was a, you know, information lag, they would come in and put things on their menu that were clearly inspired by Passard, but now because nobody has been to his restaurant. He wasn't even well-known in the mid to late 90s, early aughts. It would be seen as their dish. And I think that's one of the reasons I think it's urban myth, potentially, but I do think it's true. 
because there is some kind of data there that Americans stopped being allowed to stage at Passard's restaurant sometime in the early aughts. I think it's because he knew he was being his ideas were being stolen. You could steal things at a rapid clip without anybody knowing. It happened. The irony is, is even now with all of this information in our hands, people steal, but people don't call bullshit on anybody anymore. Really, not even the food media. It almost never happens. Occasionally it does, but it doesn't nearly happen as much as it should. So, like again, there's pros and cons to this information gap, but. Now diners want to know instantly. Everything was instant. What's on the menu today? Oh, what's the special today? What's that pasta shit? What's this? What's that? I think we all loved it because it was new. It was novel. It was amazing to have that instant thing. I mean, just as a comp, like, I don't want to go back to TV where I have to change the channel on the fucking TV. I love having a remote control. It's like the, having things that are instant are great, but I don't know if it's actually a good thing, you know, in food. So that was sort of the question that I have. Is, is it a good thing? Is it a good thing that we have instant access? Which leads us to 2015. Now, every restaurant has their own social media feed. Everybody is creating FOMO. Photos created FOMO. Like nobody's business. There's no more secrets. Live experiences. It is like social currency to be able to hold it over your friend that you've been to this restaurant that nobody else has. It's completely changed the mindsets of diners and chefs. It's completely changed the creative process. Again, photos and social media for restaurants and all the FOMO that is being created, again, is good or bad, but also sometimes it's not useful. That's what I guess I'm getting at. You know, if you're just looking at the photos of stuff to judge if a restaurant's good, aren't you missing out on all the potential other things? If you're so focused on the sexiest, most beautiful thing uh, for food or, again, this FOMO principle, I, I don't know if that actually is beneficial. It's, it's like looking at a photo from last year to judge the weather tomorrow. It's crazy. It's like, you know, looking at the, the best film of the year based on just the audio. It doesn't make any sense. It's Photo is just a small way of consuming something. It's not anything, really. It's just a moment in time. Everything's changing. So it's nice to share. And maybe photos would be great if we're now encouraging conversation about it, but we're not. It's just an instant, I see it, swipe left, swipe right, whatever the fuck. That's just the way it is. We just rely too much on the visual. Doesn't capture everything. I know there's a lot of, of the ugly, delicious spirit in what I'm trying to say, but I think it's pretty accurate. And I'm just as much to blame as fucking anybody else. And I don't even know if it's good or bad. I'm legitimately holding these things loosely. You know, Chris Ying, our resident surfer, has talked about how, I don't know if he's talked about you guys, but he talks a lot about Surfline era. You know, I don't know anything about surfing. I like watching about it. But if you follow surfline.com, you're able to see the beach and the breaks before you even go there. And I guess a bunch of these guys in 1985 at Huntington Beach started a pay-per-call service, and they recorded the surf report every morning, and their motto was, know before you go. Maybe it should be, instead of know before you go, maybe it's don't know before you go, or go and don't know. Would my life be better? Would our dining lives be better if we didn't know what was being made at Noma in 2015 or at any restaurant that you're about to eat at, or if you didn't look up Yelp and look at the reviews, if I didn't go on like say DoorDash and I see some comment about it or Google reviews, how the fuck do I know that this person knows anything they're talking about? You know what I mean? Like 
It doesn't make any sense. It might make more sense if I know the person and I trust them because we talk a lot and I know their likes and dislikes. In some regard, that is a positive for you know these these national food critics because I guess over time you get to know their likes and dislikes, but they still become this central figure in letting people know you know what they like and dislike. But they don't share enough of their dislikes, quite frankly. And the reason I bring up 2015 and this moment is because I didn't know it at the time that this was going to open Pandora's box, both good and bad, about what food could be. Because I could now watch live halfway around the world in Japan, Tokyo, at a restaurant that I would kill to go at. And I would now see Ivan talk about every course that was being dropped and how fucking amazing it looked and how badly I wanted it. But I couldn't have it. But you know what satiated it? I at least got to see it. I didn't get to taste it, but I got to see it. And if that was happening at the most exclusive restaurant, the hardest to get seats in the fucking world, then what is going to happen with every fucking restaurant underneath that? You know, it's happening to every fucking restaurant. If we're eating like that, I don't know if that's a good thing. I do think we should know less. I, I, again, I don't have the answer. But I'm going back to the Anna Jack ties. I was, I was left in a sense of wonder because I didn't know fucking anything. It was awesome. I trusted Marguerite's opinion for sure, but I didn't read anything. And maybe that's what we need to be doing. Maybe a, a little bit more judicious about what we know about a restaurant going in. I think it's about getting data yourself, getting real experience yourself. Again, pragmatic philosophy of what's good for me may not be good for somebody else. You know, it's quite possible that best restaurant list that you are looking at right now, the restaurant you should go to is not the best restaurant, but the restaurant next to the best restaurant or two stores down for the best restaurant. And you should discover your own list. We need that sense of discovery. Food is a beautiful thing when it can be that way. Same as a movie, same as a comedy show, same as a piece of art. I'll, I'll be honest. It's like when I went to the Sistine Chapel, I seen it so many fucking times. It wasn't nearly as amazing as I thought it was going to be. Because I became desensitized to it. I, I think the, the, the real issue here is we've become desensitized to a lot of this. And the images that we look at food has, has really done that. So anyway, this is a larger conversation. So at the very least, you can hear from Ivan what happened. Because sometimes we joke that it's like the Archduke of Ferdinand getting shot and, uh, that started World War I. Um, something that was seemed like a relatively uh, meaningless event, but something that was not significant enough that had a chain reaction. But now if I had to think about it, when that happened, the moment I even did that, as much as I enjoyed it, it opened up Pandora's box, but now everybody was going to do it. And it was going to be from your local diner to your sushi site in Tokyo. Everyone's going to know everything. And with all that knowledge, are we doing anything with that knowledge? I don't think so. What we're doing is actually being paralyzed by that choice, being paralyzed by that information. Uh, hopefully you enjoyed this podcast. This could have been a 16 hour podcast series. We tried to talk about it as hopefully as clearly as possible. And hopefully it made sense to you, but uh, I know it was a lot of subjects that we're trying to piece together and, uh, we're going to, we're going to keep at this and get a better understanding because I do think we're onto something. Anyway, give us five stars. Thank you guys. This episode is brought to you by Lululemon. Guys, if you're ready for a new pair of pants, try one of Lululemon's ABC pants. They're made to make you look 
and feel good. And there's lots of different styles to choose from. My favorite, because I walk around LA every day, I like the joggers. I'm not jogging, I'm just walking fast. But if you're working out, I would try them out. And if you want something a little sleek, maybe business-like, maybe try the ABC Slim Fit Trouser, but I am a joggers guy. I just, once COVID happened, I was just like, I'm, I want to wear jogging pants and joggers and all kinds of soft pants as much as I possibly can, especially when I'm working out. Ultra comfortable and versatile. ABC pants are really in a league of their own. Buy a pair right now at lululemon.com. 